This is a Valerie Moss original podcast. Chapter 22 Revelations Ensued From an upstairs window, Judith watched Otis Hoos drive away and knew that her hope in that quarter had failed. He had spent a night at Timberley. He had witnessed her discomfiture, but he did not come to her support. If this shrewd, not disinterested attorney had failed to see anything on which to base an accusation of Thorn, there was nothing left to Judith but her fear. She wondered what the three men had talked about behind the closed door of the room downstairs. All night long she had tormented herself at the fear of what might be discovered by the two who were sleeping there. Once, unable to close her eyes, she had stolen from the bed in the alcove and slipped outdoors, in wrapper and nightgown, to peer through the window of the adjacent room. With her hand pressed to the moonlight pane, shielding her eyes from the eerie radiance, she had been able to satisfy herself that both men were abed, and the closet door fast shut. She had crept back into the house and her own bed without waking her husband, and fallen at last into slumber. But now, the caucus following breakfast had revived last night's fear. With the men gone, she was free to question Richard, but... She was afraid she might betray herself. She could no longer trust her tongue to speak her mind's intention. The feeling of someone close behind her was with her constantly now, prompting her every utterance, possessing her very soul. It was not of her own volition that she quarreled with Richard. She had listened, helpless, last night, to her own tirade as it poured from her mouth upon Thorn knowing that with every breath she was driving her lover from her. He had slept by her side in the alcove in a bed that was strange and comfortless, and not once had he touched or spoken to her. Did he really believe she was lying about the things she had seen, or did he think she was losing her mind? This was the beginning of a significant change in Judith. As winter came on, she spent more and more time in her room. She made it bright and cheerful, and there was always a fire to attract visitors, so that gradually it became a family habit to sit in Judith's room instead of the room downstairs. Anne said one day to her daughter Kate, We sit with Judith now almost as much as we used to sit with Abigail. And then, as the words sank in, mother and daughter exchanged a troubled look. Judith's most frequent visitor was, surprisingly, young Will. The lad was obliged to pass her door in order to reach his own room, and she always called some pleasant greeting to him. At first he responded sulkily and went by. Then he took to lingering in the doorway. Finally he came in and sat down. He never had much to say, but he seemed flattered that Judith should enjoy talking to him. The talk always turned subtly upon himself. What was he doing these winter days when there was so little work upon the farm? Whom did he see when he went in to Woodridge? Why hadn't he attended the housewarming at Tatum's the other night? Because he had no girl to take? 
Fie, there must be dozens of girls in the neighborhood to choose from. Little by little, the taciturn youth revealed himself to this clever sister-in-law as he had never revealed himself to mother or sisters. And Judith discovered a curious thing about young Will. He was jealous of his older brother. That he was unconscious of this jealousy was as evident as that it existed. But it had been the main spring of his industry on the farm, just as it had been the stimulus for his adolescent wild oats. Because Richard had been born with that charm which pleases without effort, it had been necessary for young Will to prove himself the better farmer and to boast of his prowess with women. You're old enough to be looking for a wife, Will. After a few confidential chats, Judith could talk to him as though she had his welfare at heart. Those girls in Woodridge have served their purpose but you don't want to be playing around all your life. He grew very red and muttered something unintelligible, but she saw that the idea was not unpleasing to him. I think you should go to the next party. And if you don't like going alone, why don't you ask Miss Anne to let you take Thorn? Judith threw in this suggestion carelessly, expecting to meet with reluctance, if not actual rejection. To her surprise, the idea was accepted with promptness that startled her. Will said he would speak to his mother. Anne Tomlinson, when approached, was likewise surprisingly cooperative. She seemed quite willing for Thorne to attend the neighborhood taffy pulls and sleigh rides with her younger son. And when Thorne, pleased and excited at the prospect of wearing her pretty dress, wondered if Richard would approve. She was told to say nothing to Richard about it. Judith laughed to herself at the way the three of them, unwittingly and with conflicting purposes, conspired with her to keep Richard in ignorance of what was going on. Her health began to improve after that, before long she was going out again with her husband. They were seen together at church on Sundays, they attended the midwinter lecture course in Woodridge. From time to time, there were guests at Timberley, and no one was merrier than Judith. It would have seemed that the simple circumstance of young Will taking Thorne to a neighborhood party now and then was all that had been needed to restore her health and tranquility. For Richard, when he learned of the parties, did not disapprove. He seemed only glad that Thorne was having fun, like other young folks. It was this outward semblance of peace, sanity, and good spirits which made the more shocking Judith's collapse when it came. Since the night Otis Hoos slept in the downstairs bedroom, her mind had been teased with uncertainty as to whether he had made any discovery. During the autumn, it was this desire to know if the doll was still under the floor of the closet, and her lack of nerve to investigate, which had made her ill. Now, fortified by her new feeling of security about Thorn, she determined to find out once and for all if the doll had been found. She waited till an afternoon when Miss Anne had gone over to her daughter Jane's, and Richard was in Woodridge. Will and Jessie Moffat were busy in the sugar orchard, and the children were at school. 
I came from Alabama with my banjo on my knee. I'm gone to Louisiana, my true love for to see. It rained all night the day I left, the weather it was dry. The sun so hot, I froze to death. Susanna, Judith was alone in the house except for Millie, whose presence in the kitchen was attested by the lusty strains of Oh, Susanna, coming through the covered passage. Judith went boldly to the downstairs bedroom and opened the door. Her nerves were as calm as though this were not the room in which she had seen bricks come through a window, only to disappear when they hit the floor. The room was dusky with drawn blinds and cold with the chill of the fireless grate. She did not linger to look about her. She went straight to the closet door. As she passed the tall canopied bed, she heard a sound like something whizzing through the air, and the next moment felt a coil about her neck. She screamed, but her scream was strangled as the noose, or whatever it was, tightened, choking her until she lost consciousness. Cold air blowing across her face restored her. The outer door was open, and Richard was standing there. But the person bending over Judith, sponging her face with a wet towel, was Thorn. And on the floor beside Thorn was a jumping rope. She had been coming from school, she said, when she heard the scream and ran into the house through the dining room a few seconds before Richard entered by the outside door. He had heard his wife scream as he rode up the lane. Judith sat up, and as her strength returned, words poured from her mouth. Ugly, venomous words accusing Thorne of trying to kill her with a piece of rope. Richard paid no heed to her raving. He carried her upstairs to her room and dispatched Thorne for his mother. And when Will came in shortly after, he was sent to Woodridge for the doctor. Dr. Caxton was just sitting down to supper when Will rode up to his house. To the disgust of his elderly housekeeper, the doctor left his meal untasted. There would be a better one for him at Timberley, and went out to the stable where his horse stood, still saddled from the day's rounds. He wondered what in damnation was the matter with Richard's wife now. If it wasn't one pain, it was another, and not a thing the matter with her, as he'd been telling Richard for years, that a baby wouldn't take care of. If you wanted to keep a woman healthy, keep her pregnant. And then the doctor's aging memory clicked into place. He hadn't been telling Richard anything about this wife for years. It was Judith, not Abigail, whom he was going to see. Yet the feeling that he was repeating a time-worn procedure was still with him when he reached the house. As he puffed upstairs after Richard, he said irritably, Why'd you move her up here? And when the answer came, he felt all kinds of a fool. But when he sat down at the bedside, he had a strange sense of having lived the scene before. The woman with the haggard eyes and restless hands plucking at the collar of her nightgown might have been Abigail. So familiar were the words which greeted him. I don't want a doctor. There's nothing the matter with me that a doctor can cure. Go away. I don't want anyone near me but Richard. He asked. How long has she been like this? I found her in this state when I came home this afternoon. Had anything happened to upset her? I'll tell you later. He administered a dose of laudanum. Being unused to sedatives, the patient succumbed quickly to its soothing effect. 
Her mutterings ceased, her nervous twitchings quieted, her eyelids drooped. In a few minutes, she was asleep. Anne Tomlinson had come into the room. She offered to sit with her daughter-in-law while the two men went down and had their supper. How many times had Richard's mother performed the same service when the woman in the bed had been Abigail instead of Judith? Dr. Caxton determined to have a straight talk with Richard as soon as they were alone, but Will was likewise in the dining room, and Thorne was putting supper on the table for the three of them, so there was no opportunity to ask Richard what had happened to throw his wife into hysterics. Thorne had eaten earlier, but at Richard's suggestion, she slipped into Judith's chair and presided over the teapot with a quaint little air of importance as though she felt her responsibilities as temporary mistress of the house. Richard, from the moment he sat down, relaxed noticeably. He did not speak of his wife's illness beyond asking the doctor if a good night's sleep wasn't the best medicine she could have. Being assured that it was, he accepted the steaming cup which Thorne handed him and began to talk of other things. He talked about neighborhood matters, news of the town, books they had been reading, politics... He talked with a quiet zest, like a man who was at ease and feeling good. It occurred to the doctor that this was a strange way for a man to feel whose wife lay ill upstairs. It was as though he had been carrying a heavy load up a hill and had put it down for a moment to rest. It came as a slight shock to Dr. Caxton, a little later, that Richard's curious relaxation stemmed from Thorne's presence behind the teapot. He could not have told how or why the idea presented itself, for Richard took no notice of her except to glance her way now and then, and Thorne did not join in the conversation, which was mostly man-talk. She busied herself with supplying the wants of three hungry males, and this she did as efficiently as Anne Tomlinson herself might have done. She refilled empty cups and replenished empty plates with a cheerful largess suggestive of a good housewife, who likes to see her menfolk eat. If Thorne's hospitality lacked the polish which Judith had brought to the Tomlinson table, it was somehow more in keeping with the farm atmosphere. Perhaps it was this absence of formality which put Richard at his ease. Perhaps it was the knowledge that everything he did was correct in the eyes of the lady behind the teapot. If he violated all rules of etiquette by demanding maple syrup on his pie, Thorne was not only refrained from censure, but cooperated by supplying the syrup. Suddenly, the doctor was struck by a truth so simple it amazed him. All these years when people had wondered at Richard's fondness for this child, they had missed entirely its significance. Thorne was probably the only person in the whole world with whom he was completely himself. A doctor might sit down to eat with these two every day for the next 40 years and never once hear the word nerves. For where a man and his wife know completion in each other, there is no friction. Only Thorne, of course, was not Richard's wife. For a moment, Dr. Caxton forgot her youth and thought irritably that she should have been. The longer he watched them, the more he was struck by his unique discovery. Why hadn't Anne Tomlinson seen what to him was perfectly obvious? Was this waif from a carnival was the only woman in the world who would ever be able to cope with the dreams, the inconsistencies, the lovable vagaries, 
which were the sum and substance of her son Richard, Thorne would never require him to toe the mark of Abigail's dogmatism, nor fit into the mold of Judith's sophistication. Thorne would simply love him and let him alone. Why hadn't Richard been able to see this and hold his patience for a little while? To an old man nearing seventy, two years was such a little while. If Richard hadn't made that damn fool second marriage. So engrossed did the doctor become in his own speculations that it came as a shock when young Will said to him, Have you noticed how Thorne is growing up, Doc? I had the bell of the ball on my hands at Jenny Barclay's the other night. Great Scott! Will Tomlinson Boeing, the child? This would never do. How old are you, Thorne? Asked the doctor. Fourteen. Said Richard promptly. Fifteen. Corrected Thorne. You were ten when I saw you at the Bridgeton Fair. Thorndike's poster said so. That was four years ago. I had been ten on those posters for a long time. You think you were more than fourteen? Asked Dr. Craxton. Yes, sir. I'm sure that I was at least twelve when I came here. That means you'll be 16 this summer, said Will with a wink. Richard's hand came down on the table with a force that rattled the dishes. She'll not be 16 for another year, and I'll thank you, Will, not to be putting ideas into her head. And you, Cricket, no fibbing about your age, or I'll forbid you going to any more parties. Gone was the cozy peace of the supper table. Will pushed back his chair with maddening insouciance and had the impertinence to make deaf and dumb talk to Thorne as he left the room. Richard, black as a thundercloud, took his pipe to the chimney corner where he sulked in silence. Thorne alone seemed unperturbed by the brisk sortie. She pushed a chair to the hearth for the doctor, cleared the table, then took her place on a stool near Richard's feet. He looked down at her without speaking. Anger still rendered him inarticulate. But his brow cleared and he smoked in deep abstraction. A tardy sense of professional duty reminded the doctor that he had a patient in the house. You were going to tell me about Judith, he said. What happened to bring on this spell? Richard said to Thorne. Isn't it time you were in bed? She looked at him with grave amusement. Isn't it time that you stopped treating me like a child? To the doctor, she explained, Richard doesn't want to talk in front of me, in fear of hurting my feelings. You see, Judith thinks I tried to strangle her, the doctor said. Great heavens! And looked to Richard for confirmation. Judith had a bad scare this afternoon, said Richard. He related how they had found her and the strange tale Judith had told when she regained consciousness. Thorne added, I was the first person she saw when she opened her eyes. On the floor beside me was a jumping rope. The doctor had listened in silence to this point. Now he leaned forward, his rugged beak silhouetted against the firelight like a vigilant hawk's. Thorn, you're in a bad spot. I know it, Dr. Caxton. She was serious but calm. There was a womanly dignity in her tonight that was a far cry from the high-strung child whom Abigail had bullied. Richard has only my word for it that I wasn't in the house when Judith screamed. Your word is all I need, said Richard. But the doctor waved him aside without taking his gaze from the child who, this night, before his very eyes, had ceased to be a child. 
Judith hasn't complained of any disturbances around here for some time, has she, Thorne? Not since the night she had that funny scare about the trundle bed. Richard, listening, felt a stab of relief that was near pain. She did not mention the ghostly hand which Lucius had seen at the window. That meant she had known nothing of it. That meant, to Richard, that she had known nothing of the doll hidden under the floor of the closet. She was innocent of everything, and he was freed from a dread that had gripped him ever since he learned of Otis Hoos's discovery. The doctor was saying to Thorne, It might look to some people as though the witch that's been plaguing Judith had been quiet long enough, that she had to make Judith notice her again or be forgotten. Witches have to keep in the limelight, don't they, Thorne? I don't know anything about witches. I don't believe in them. Then who do you think is frightening Richard's wife? I don't know. You deny having anything to do with it yourself? Yes, sir. Will you swear to that on the Bible? Richard started angrily to protest. The doctor hushed him with a look and reached for a testament on a nearby table. Thorne laid her hand on the book and said, I swear that I am telling the truth. I have had nothing to do with the strange things that Judith has seen. She withdrew her hand and added childishly, Except the magic tricks on Miss Anne's birthday. And we believe you, said Richard. No one accuses you. Except Judith, said Thorne. Judith is ill. When she's well again, she'll be your friend, just as she's always been. She looked at him strangely, as though seeking to learn whether he believed his own words. He flushed and said hurriedly that she'd better be getting to bed. But his eyes followed her as she left the room, and he was no more aware of what he had revealed to Dr. Caxton than he was of the depth of devotion which she aroused in him. He said as though dismissing the whole matter, Judith suffers from too much imagination. She's been bothered with her old throat trouble lately. I think she had another of those paroxysms and, already being keyed up, fainted from sheer fright. The doctor said, Has it struck you, Richard, that she's having the same symptoms that Abigail had? When I saw her tonight, I got a shock. She looked so damn much like your first wife. Richard nodded gloomily. He too had noted the queer similarity. It's a plain case of hysteria. The doctor went on. She probably feels guilty about marrying you so soon after Abigail's death. I'd say the best treatment she could have would be <clears throat> a little more affection on your part. When Richard went into his wife's room, shortly before noon the next day, he found her sitting in front of the dresser combing her hair. She greeted him normally. Why didn't you wake me sooner, dear? He tried to conceal his surprise. You were sleeping so soundly. I thought you needed the rest. He looked at her anxiously. She was wearing a most becoming boudoir wrapper. You look better this morning. Better? You talk as though I had been ill. Don't you remember Dr. Caxton coming last night? Why, Richard, what are you talking about? I never felt better in my life. He had the strangest feeling that she was dissembling, that she remembered the doctor's visit but preferred to ignore it. Well, you look fine this morning, Judith. I guess all you needed was a good night's rest. His eyes met hers in the mirror, and there was relief in his smile. The specter of another ordeal by embolism had been removed.
Richard, what has become of that friend of yours who used to come out from Woodridge? Such an unusual person. A blacksmith, wasn't he? You mean Doc Baird? That's the one. He was so interesting. Why don't we have him out to supper sometime? Richard's astonishment was so great he could scarcely conceal it. Of all his acquaintances, the blacksmith was the one on whom Judith had most definitely turned thumbs down. I thought you didn't care for Doc Baird. Why, dear, whatever gave you such an idea? I like all of your friends. She turned from the mirror brightly as she rose. If you can get word to Mr. Baird, why not have him out tonight? You really mean that? Of course I mean it. He was boyishly pleased. I'm going to Woodbridge today. I'll bring Doc back with me. Good. She kissed him, her delicately scented hands framing his face. Her kisses always reduced him to helpless confusion. Last night he had faced stark fear for her sanity. A moment ago he had faced almost as disturbingly suspicion that she was not dealing honestly with him. But when she kissed him, his mind was washed blank. He muttered, I have work to do, and tried to break away, but she held him with her arms and her lips. The work can wait. Stay with me. She coaxed. There's the trip to town. You'll have time for that afterward. He put his hand behind him and closed the door. The trouble is, said Judith, we've never been able to discuss these things because Richard always loses his temper. And she smiled indulgently at her husband, as at a retarded child. They were sitting in the front room after supper, Judith and Richard and Doc Baird. Judith had some dainty needlework in her white hands. Richard, watching her, tried bewilderedly to identify the gracious lady who had just spoken with the hag-ridden woman of the night before, or the beguiling hussy who had lured him, a busy farmer, to bed in mid-morning. I thought, Mr. Baird, you might be able to explain to Richard how that trundle bed had been made to dance by the same principle by which you used to make tables move. How the subject of the trundle bed had come up, Richard could not have said. It was weeks since the incident had been mentioned, and Judith's revival of the topic puzzled and disturbed him. Doc Baird explained to her, In table tipping, the hands must rest upon the table. Was anyone touching the bed when you saw it dance? I couldn't tell. A draft had blown out the candles. Richard looked at his friend significantly. The candles were burning all the while. No one but Judith saw the bed do anything. And that's because you were all watching me, said Judith. She explained to the blacksmith. I screamed very foolishly and distracted everyone's attention from the trick that was being performed. No trick was being performed, said Richard. Tricks were being performed all evening. But not with the trundle bed. Voices of husband and wife were rising. Doc Baird interrupted. You're sure no one was touching the bed? Thorn wasn't. 
Richard brought the name forth boldly, looking straight at Judith. She asked, How do you know whether or not she was touching it? I had hold of her hands. A bright flush drenched Judith's face. She bent low over her work. Doc Baird said, If no one was touching the bed, it couldn't have been animal magnetism. There has to be physical contact to establish the current. He spread his huge hands with justifiable pride on this subject. He was something of an authority. What I object to is not a frank discussion of these disturbing experiences of Judith's, but the implication that Thorne is lying when she says she has nothing to do with them. The suggestion that Judith longed to make and dared not was unexpectedly offered by Doc Baird. Of course, there's one way to clear Thorne. What's that? If she were sent away for a while and Judith continued to be frightened in her absence, Thorne's innocence would be proved beyond doubt. And suppose Judith were not frightened in her absence? Should that be taken as proof of her guilt? Doc Bear did not remain long after that. When he rose to take his departure, he was not asked to stay the night. He was offered instead the loan of a horse to ride back to town. But his visit had far-reaching consequences. What do you think of Doc's suggestion? Judith asked her husband as they were preparing for bed. What suggestion? Richard was sitting in a low chair taking off his boots. He sat up in shocked alertness. She went quickly on before he could speak. She could go to Kentucky and stay with your sister Annie. She's not doing well in school here. Perhaps she'd do better there. He said, You're talking like Abigail. And bent once more to his boots so that he failed to see the fear that leaped to Judith's eyes. For a second, she looked as she had the night before. I'm making a reasonable suggestion. As Doc Baird said, with Thorn away, we can determine whether or not it is she who is trying to frighten me. These annoyances are no longer trivial, Richard. My experience yesterday might have been fatal. I think I have a right to know who made that attempt on my life. At last he saw through her strategy. The evening's talk had been a base from which to launch a criminal charge against Thorn. Not in hysteria, but in cool, considered reason, Judith was accusing the girl of murderous assault. Shocked, horrified, and angry as Judith had never seen him, he told her in unmistakable language that Thorne was not going anywhere. Timberley was her home. And I warn you right now, if she leaves this house, I leave it. His unexpected violence so alarmed Judith that had he stopped with those words, he would have left her in a state of apprehension, which might have ensured peace for all time. But because his anger held the fury of the disciplined man driven beyond control, he had to go on, shouting in his rage. No attempt was made on your life. You had a fit of hysterics. The doctor said so. But if there's any more talk of Thorne's guilt in this matter, I'll give people cause to have hysterics. And that goes for every last mother's son of you.
as there was no one else present but Judith, and she was certainly no mother's son. The absurdity of this last threat struck her as humorous and restored her equanimity. You shouldn't make speeches in your underdrawers, darling. They distract the attention of your audience. Without another word, he picked up his boots and his breeches and marched downstairs to sleep in the alcove. Judith blew out her candle and climbed into bed. She was not troubled by his temper. It was more reassuring than his silence. She would let him sweat a little as a matter of discipline. It would be all the better when he came back. It always was, after a quarrel. What she never dreamed was that this time he would not come back. Stay tuned to the end of the show for a preview to next week's episode. Hey everyone, I'm Valerie Moss, and I'm the narrator for this mystery book, Project EF, as well as producer and director. You can find me at ValerieMoss.ca and check out my podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. The show is about eating, reading, and creating. I live in Calgary, Alberta, Canada. Here's the cast of characters for today's show. Hi, my name is Garrett Odell from Fargo, North Dakota, and I'm the voice of Will Tomlinson. You can find me where I co-host with my friend Frankie on the Ever-Trending Story podcast. Hi, my name is Carol Sin. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida. I will be the voice of Miss Ann Tomlinson. You can find me at carolsin.wordpress.com. You can also find me on YouTube and Instagram as Carol Sin. Hi, my name is Kylie, and I'm playing the role of Judith. You can find me in my new podcast called Cryptic Soup, streaming now. You can also connect with me on my website, kingmarketingbykylie.com, and on my Instagram, at kmorgan, with two A's. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Wrestle Life Radio, but wait... This isn't Wrestle Life Radio, but this is Matt Sin from Wrestle Life Radio. I'm from Jacksonville, Florida, and I play the role of Doc Baird. You can find me at Wrestle Life Matt on Instagram and Twitter, but please follow my show at Wrestle Life Radio on Facebook and Instagram and Wrestle Life Pod on Twitter. You can listen to us anywhere you get your shows Spotify, iTunes, Google Play, Radio Public, and of course, Anchor. I look forward to interacting with all of you very soon. Hello, my name is Linda Moss, and I was on my mom's podcast, Valerie's Variety Podcast. We did a few episodes together of London and Mum. Anyway, I did Thorn, a.k.a. Cricket, on Project DF, not known as I'm not telling the real name. <laughs> Thank you. I hope you like listening. Bye. Hi, my name is Peggy Davis. I'm the voice of Millie. Coincidentally, I have a dog named Melly. We live in Clovis, California. I'm a retired teacher and a small business owner, and you can find us on Instagram as Peggy Melly. Hey, everybody. My name is Rafe Telsch. I'm from Roanoke, Virginia in the United States, and I am the voice of Richard Tomlinson. You can find me on the podcast Have Not Seen This. You're listening to Bottom Shelf Recording Talk. Sounds boring. Oh my, yes. With your hosts, James Seabrook. Editing, mixing, and additional voices by James Seabrook at Two Bodies of Water Productions. 
Follow our hosts on Twitter at Two Bodies of Water. Got that mic in a comfortable spot yet? I'm still working on it. Music for this show is by Text Me Records and Leviath called The Black Cat. Cover art image by Danny Muller. Podcast trailer and cover art designed by me, Valerie Moss. Here's a preview for next week's show. I'm just trying to show you that running away will be taken as an admission of guilt by those who would like to prove you guilty. They argued this point, pro and con. Thorne said finally, Don't you think, Richard, that you owe your mother an apology? There were times when the schoolteacher in Judith was still evident. She hasn't a thought that isn't a child's thought. I've seen her looking at you. Suddenly, Judith began to laugh softly, her whole body shaking with almost silent mirth. For Ode to Joy by Cooper Canal, a no-copyright free download music that I used to give patronage to John Barclay's love for his violin. This song almost brings me to tears every time I play it. I hope it has the same effect on you. Disclaimer. Margaret Eckhard is the author of this book. The audio drama is based off of. Copyright 1941 by Doubleday Publishing House, now owned by Penguin Random House, who only supports current authors, who checked all available resources and directories for literary rights agents and contacts and found nothing. We tried to track down errors of Eckhart's, but to no avail. We reached out to the Indiana Library, who houses the largest amount of articles of Margaret Eckhart. They provided us with a renewal ID, R579915, and had consulted directories for her heirs and contacts. However, found nothing beyond Doubleday Publishing House, which was a dead end. We searched extensively for the copyright holders of this book to get permission to make the audio drama, but we're unable to find them. And if anyone has any information about the copyright for the book or the rights holders, please reach out to me.